Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at You can go ahead and be seated. Ben, thank you so much for leading us in a time of singing, um, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I, I think we actually did that. <laughs> the first one was a psalm, the second one was a hymn, and the third one was a spiritual song. And so thank you for being biblical. Um, my name is Dwayne. I'm one of the pastors here at the District Church, and so if you're new with us, thank you for worshiping with us today. Uh, kind of give you a little bit into what we're going to be doing over the next uh, 35, 40 minutes, Lord willing, is just opening up the Bible because we open it up because we want to learn from it. So we want to learn from uh, God and what He is teaching us and how the Holy Spirit is using the Word of God to transform our lives and become more and more like Jesus um, every single day. And so uh, we preach expository through uh, the scriptures, and so we go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Um, and so today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 18. We are in a series in the book of Acts, um, and uh, we're going to be covering um, quite a bit today. And so uh, go ahead and open up Acts 18. We're going to be in verse 18 starting out. And the way I'm going to go through it today, because we are covering a big chunk of um, these passages, is I'm going to read through, and as I read through, I'll pit stop, discuss a little bit with you, and then jump right back in and just keep reading through rather than reading it all collectively. Give you a little bit of context as you're getting there to Acts 18. Um, last week, we looked at Paul uh, pr- planting the gospel in the city of Corinth. Uh, Corinth was uh, one of the most um, vile and just brutal cities when it comes to sin. Uh, Literally, they had a phrasing back in that day or a saying, uh, to live as they do in Corinth basically meant like you are the worst of the worst, um, kind of within the Roman Empire. Um, They even talked about kind of the, the term to Corinthianize literally meant to practice whoredom or prostitution. So this was kind of the way of the Corinthians. And what we saw Paul do in the city was he actually came, preached the gospel, reasoned in the synagogue like he always did whenever he would come into a city for the first time. And as he reasoned with them, he actually had a lot of opposition um, and rejection come at him. And kind of unlike Paul, we saw an immediate frustration to where he shook out his garments, which was just kind of a way of saying, I'm washing my hands of this. I don't want anybody to know that I've been here. I don't want there to be any sign that I was in this city. And so he shook out his garments, and from there he was going to just move on. But the Lord had something else for him. The Lord came to him in a vision at night and basically said, look, I, I do not want you to be afraid which was interesting because we know Paul's gone through a lot of issues within his ministry. Um, This is a guy who gets shipwrecked three times, he gets bitten by snakes, he gets beaten, he gets tortured, he gets imprisoned time and time again. And we find him here in a city where he's actually fearful, fearful for his life. And so the Lord's telling him, do not be afraid, I'm with you, they are not going to harm you. No one's going to lay a hand on you, no one's going to attack you. I'm with you. I'm going to take care of you. Go on, continue speaking, and do not be silent. He's telling them, go on, continue sharing the gospel with the people in the city because he says, at the end of that, I have many people in this city. And I love that because that shows us the sovereignty of God over who he is going to save when the gospel is preached and proclaimed within a city. 
And so he knew that there were going to be people in the city that he was going to save. And so he wants the gospel preached and he wants the gospel proclaimed so that through that he can save people and call them to himself. And this is exactly what happens within the city of Corinth to where we actually see a great number of people come to know Jesus. Two in particular that we're going to see here are two people that he met at the beginning in Corinth when he was still kind of making tents um, as kind of like a side gig, side business that he was doing to be able to earn some kind of resources for his ministry. He meets a couple called Prisca and Aquila. Prisca and Aquila. And these were two people that as he poured his life into over the next year and a half, developed them as lay people, as, as faithful. They did not join like pastoral staff. They did not come into this type of uh, vocational ministry, but rather they were just faithful members, faithfully being discipled in the ways of Christ so that as they continued moving from city to city, spreading their business, they were also tent makers. As they were spreading their business, they were being faithful to the gospel proclamation and teaching and training people as they were going along. I love this couple, and this is actually where we'll pick this up in verse 18 of Acts chapter 18 as um, we go on here from Corinth. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Prisca and Aquila, at century, had, uh, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into a synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Now, our entire message today is going to revolve around Ephesus. But it was really interesting here that Paul takes Prisca and Aquila and he gets here to Ephesus. And he actually goes and reasons in the, in the synagogue uh, for a short time period. But then leaves Ephesus to continue on. But make sure Prisca and Aquila stay here in Ephesus. Verse 24. Or verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So what Paul is actually doing right now, and this is just a side note um, to, to kind of allow us to be able to see that discipleship is never just a, an open door and then a closed door whenever you move on to another place or to another city or to another church or to whatever it looks like. It's always an open door in which disciples can be strengthened based on your relationship with them. So whether it's someone that's discipled you in the past or someone that you've discipled in the past or had a discipling relationship with, always keep that door open because because it's opportunities for us as we are growing in Christ to be able to reconnect with disciples to go back and strengthen them. This is exactly what he is doing. Is he is now going back through the region of Galatia and Phrygia where there were multiple churches there that he had planted in the past on his first and second missionary journeys. And he is strengthening the disciples there. Verse 24, now bringing it back into Ephesus. Now a Jew named Apollos... A native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Prisca and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained 
to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross the, to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So we meet this guy named Apollos, who what we know from church history was one of the most gifted communicators in regards to the spreading of the gospel. Um, he was very eloquent in his speech. He was very intelligent. He was very gifted as a church leader. He was also just a phenomenal church planter. He would go into cities and plant churches and raise them up and teach them as their pastors and just continue doing this throughout these regions, especially within Achaia. And this guy, we would almost say, doesn't need to learn anything else. He's got it. It literally says that when he comes into this region, that he is accurately teaching the way of Jesus. Like, what more do you want from somebody who is going to be teaching than to know that they are accurately teaching the way of Jesus? But of course, there are always going to be areas in which anybody in leadership or anybody who's preaching or anybody who's teaching has areas where they need to grow in especially in areas of the gospel when we look at the holistic gospel that involves all of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We can't just be people who focused on the Father and His will and what He has done in inspiring the Scriptures, and so we're going to be just kind of those people. We also can't be just those people who are just focusing on Jesus and, fo- and looking at what Jesus did and let's, let's wear the what would Jesus do bracelets and let's just figure it out on a daily basis exactly what Jesus did without looking at the will of the Father, without looking at the role of the Father, and without also looking at the role of the Holy Spirit. But then we can also be people who just want to focus on Holy Spirit. And we don't want to look at Jesus and what he testified to. And we don't want to look at the Father and what he's inspired in his will. But we just want to kind of go through the winds and the fires of life and kind of let the Holy Spirit push and direct and guide where he wants us to go. But yet we don't bring truth there because we don't have it represented in Jesus. And we don't bring truth there because we don't have it inspired from the Father. And so when it comes to accurately teaching the gospel, we need all three. And when it comes to this person, Apollos, he was a guy who knew the Father and knew Jesus when it comes to the way of teaching, but did not know the Holy Spirit. He did not know the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I love that when Paul came into this area and Apollos was there, he wasn't the one who talked to him. But rather it was the, the, the married couple, Prisca and Aquila, who come and pull Apollos aside and say, hey, we think you're, we, we think you're great. We think you're killing it. We think you're doing an awesome job. Um, however, you're still teaching the baptism of John. And just so you know, something happened at Pentecost that showed up to replace the baptism of John to ultimately be the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what we need for actual power. The baptism of John was the illustration that, hey, Jesus is coming. We don't want you to miss him. Therefore, you need to turn from what you're trusting in and turn in Jesus. Turn to him. Look to him. Don't miss Jesus. That's the baptism of John. Just literally preparing the way so that as he is going out... And actually, he, didn't, he just went out to one place. Everybody came to him out in the wilderness. But as he's baptizing people, he's just giving the illustration. Look, people, um, our people, the Jews, we've been for years, for millennia, waiting, waiting for a Messiah. 
waiting for the anointed one, waiting for the one that when we are buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in a newness of life, we are going to be new creatures because we are being saved in this person. This person is doing all the work for us. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is Jesus, the Christ. That was John the Baptist's ministry. Don't miss him. He must increase. I must decrease. Don't focus on my ministry of baptizing. Focus on Jesus. And then what does Jesus do? At the end of Jesus' ministry says, hey, I have come. I have perfectly done everything for your behalf, everything that you need for righteousness, but I'm also going to be sending a helper. I'm going to be sending the Holy Spirit who will come on you, as he says in Acts 1-8, with power. And that power is what you are going to need in order for all of my righteousness to come into you, abide within you, for your unrighteousness to be removed, your righteous, my righteousness now to be your identity. And therefore, you will then have the power to live out teaching accurately the way of the gospel, living accurately the way of the gospel, spreading the gospel being able to see the fruit of the Spirit come out of your lives when it comes to love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. If you want all these things, you're going to need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You're going to need Him in you as you are in me and as I am in the Father. You're going to need literally a Trinitarian just in capture of your entire life. That's what you need. And so they are pulling Apostle aside saying, hey man, you, you are such a gifted communicator and teacher, but if you do not teach the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're actually not giving them any power. You're not giving them what they need in order to continue living out and being sanctified daily, being transformed more and more into the person of Jesus Christ. And I love this because these are people that are like you. These are people that are like you. This isn't the, the, the professional pastors. This isn't the celebrity pastors. This isn't the gifted pastors. These are tent makers who own a business who so loved Jesus that they were willing to orient their lives to be able to receive as much teaching as possible. When they were in Corinth with the Apostle Paul, he stayed another 18 months there after he tried to leave once. He stayed another 18 months and they just sat under his teaching to the point to where they were able to then be able to go out and just continue faithfully encouraging, edifying, and teaching and building up the body of Christ. We need more Priscas and Aquilas within our church to be able to go out and see this done. I love it. Moving us now into chapter 19. Picking it up in verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples... Of course he's going to find some disciples. He's been, Apollos has been in Ephesus. He's been teaching. He's been reasoning in the synagogues. He's been planting the gospel. So Paul finds some disciples that are there. And Paul says to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. 
And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And, then, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came to them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. They were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard of the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. So I want to give you a little bit of background into Ephesus because this is really, you're going to see a, a huge transformation happen in this city in just a few moments. But I want to give you a little bit of background to this city, just kind of like I did with um, Corinth. Ephesus is not near as bad as Corinth when it comes to just uh, moral debauchery. Um, rather, they actually have a lot of pride within their own city and within their own way of life. Ephesus is, is the capital of the Roman province of Asia, which is kind of now for us modern-day Turkey. Um, it was founded in about the 12th century B.C. by Ionians from Athens. Um, if you know anything about Athens, it was a very religious, spiritual city. We covered Athens just a few weeks ago. Um, it was full of temples to various gods, including a temple to an unknown god, just in case they missed any. Ephesus is following suit with this. Ephesus is full of gods and goddesses, and primarily um, their focus is on the Greek goddess Artemis, which is also translated Diana. The Greek goddess Artemis is the goddess over fertility as well as um, being known as a game hunter. Um, so she was also kind of a protection for this city. And I actually want to show you a couple of slides here that are very interesting to me. Uh, right now at the Children's Museum, We've got children, so it's okay that I'm there. Um, but at the Children's Museum, uh, they have the Ancient Greece exhibit going on right now. Um, and at first, I kind of thought this was going to be, you know, just um, kind of clay statues, like uh, fake statues of just what it originally looked like in Ancient Greece. But it is legit like the... Um, statues that they have borrowed from different museums around the nation and even some from Europe that they have brought over. So about 90% of the statues that are in um, this exhibit are actually um, original to this time period. Um, some of them date back to 200 to 300 BC. Some of them are in the, the first century, which is literally right in the context of what we're talking about. And I've got Josh looking at me, shaking his head. Are we not, do we not have the pictures up there? Okay, well, <laughs> well, let's see what they look like. Is, is it, I sent them to them from my phone, so it's probably off. It's not terrible. Um, so this is Artemis, um, and this statue over here uh, is from her body, and this is dating around 400 to 300 B.C., and this one's in 1st to 2nd century, 100 to 200 um, A.D., and I just wanted you to see kind of just a glimpse of what we're talking about when we say um, what is driving the socioeconomic status of the city is the manufacturing of these types of idols and statues that people are purchasing to put in their homes that literally would be um, replacing our TVs, if I can just say it that way. 
They're putting it as, as the centerpiece in their homes. They're putting all of their furniture focusing on this one thing because they want to make sure that they are appeasing this goddess or this God in order for them to receive the blessings and the hope and the satisfaction and the joy. Whatever is going to benefit their home, they want to make sure it all centers around this religion, this spirituality. Um, and so this is... Um, the, the one from here. I actually want to show you the next one. I don't know if it'll, if it'll work out well or not. So this is the head of Aphrodite, and this is actually in first century Athens. And as we covered a couple of weeks ago, um, in Athens, as we saw literally temples to everybody there, including the unknown God, um, the, as the gospel continued to spread there, um, what you're going to see in Ephesus is what actually happened also in Athens. If you can see this, and I'm actually just going to read it here, it says, A lot can happen to a statue over the course of 2,500 years. Some are damaged by accident and some on purpose. The crosses scratched onto the statue's forehead and chin were carved by Christian worshipers. So what you actually begin to see in this early century is they're going around and marking their territory. We're not putting hope in these statues anymore. We're not giving our lives over to having a way of life or religious um, ritual or any type of moralistic, therapeutic deism towards these statues. Um, but rather, we're marking our place. We trust in Jesus Christ who went to the cross, who lived the perfect life for us, who died the death that we deserve, and who rose three days later, who can actually guarantee for us eternal life and hope and satisfaction. Amen. Like for Jesus, like thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. So what we've seen in Athens, you are about to see happen in Ephesus. And I just wanted to kind of give you just a little bit of a visual. And really, it's even going to be more drastic um, here in Ephesus. So let's pick up in verse 11. And God was, was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them, which is just phenomenal. Which is also one of the ways, if you ever see like on TV, um, the infomercials about like, buy this spiritual handkerchief, and it's going to provide. This is where they get that from, but they don't have the authority of Paul, okay? Like their handkerchiefs, don't get duped by what you see on TV. Like prayer in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit Lord willing from the Father is what's going to produce any type of miraculous healing within our lives. It's not going to come through some type of infomercial. So, side note, that's where they get it from, but I'm going to trust the scriptures here. Then some, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, and seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wound, wounded. I've got to stop here for a moment because um, you can't read this and not address it. You've got these seven sons of Sceva, 
who have this ministry, if you will, or job or gig of being itinerant Jewish exorcists. Like, I don't know if that's a job listing on Indeed or what. Like, I don't know how you get that job, but they're itinerant Jewish exorcists. So they literally just go around to Jewish synagogues looking for demon-possessed people and just attempt to exorcise them. Well, they see the power and authority that Paul holds, that even his handkerchiefs are being dragged away, given to the sick, and are healing people. They see this, and so from there, they're thinking, man, um, this is going really well for this guy when it comes to casting out demons and exercising authority. We really don't have authority. We're just kind of trying some things. So think like David Blaine kind of guys, like going around the city. We're going to show you some, uh, some like kind of different um, miraculous things, but to just try to kind of make, some, make you in awe of what they're doing. But they really don't have any power or authority, which is why they're going after Paul's. So they're just listening to him. He just keeps referencing this name, Jesus Christ, and that works out for him. So let's go do the same thing. So they go and find this demon-possessed man, and they come to this demon-possessed man, and they just say, hey, we, we adjure you by the power of Jesus Christ, come out. And I love that this demon just looks at them and says, okay, Jesus we know, that's obvious. Um, we get scared when he enters into the room. Paul we've heard of, which I love because then you know that amongst the demonic world, there's gossip about the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Like, have you heard of this guy? Like, we've got to figure out a way to, to stop what he's doing because he is spreading the gospel and he's casting us out because of Jesus. We know Jesus. Paul, we've heard of. But they look at these seven sons of Sceva. Who are you? I mean, think how terrifying that would be to be these guys looking at a demon, thinking we have more power, and then they look at, who do you think you are? And then it literally says that the demons leapt on them to the point of physically harming them to where they left naked and wounded. Now, I, it's been a long time since I've been in a physical fight. I think, if I can date, yes, it is good as your pastor. Um, I think it's probably been at least middle school, maybe in the high school. Um, here was kind of the rule of thumb for us. Like, if when you entered the fight, you had pants on, and at the end of the fight, you leave with no pants on. It's unanimous who won the fight. Like in this scenario, they did not win in any type of exorcism of this demon. Like they got their pants knocked off. They left wounded, probably had their pride struck a little bit. Like they are gone. And here's the point of why I think they're using this in the scriptures is that when it comes to being a Christian and following Jesus, just simple recitation of words is not going to produce anything for you. Just speaking Christianese and kind of playing the part of church, or let's just say fake it till you make it, does not work within Christianity. It does not work when it comes to having any type of Holy Spirit power and authority that He has given us. We cannot fake it till we make it. We cannot just simply recitate or, or recite um, Christian language or even just biblical language in order to try to convince other people that we're on the team or that we belong to Jesus. This one should be kind of a gut check for some of us to think, are we just practicing this or are we actually believers? 
Are we in? Are we faithful? And I love what it says in verse 17. This actually provides some clarity for us of what it looks like to be true worshipers. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers, that's a key word there, now believers, came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. You don't see these seven sons of Sceva who are practicing some type of magic arts when it comes to their own form of exorcism. You don't see them trying to um, stop doing it the way they were doing it and doing it a different way by believing in Jesus Christ. They're not coming burning their way of living. They're not coming, um, they're literally, you're not seeing a change in trajectory in their life. Rather, they're seeing Jesus as someone who can be personal gain or capital gains for the ministry that we already have or the gig job that we already have. So let's just attach Jesus to it, hoping that it's going to produce for us the American dream. That's kind of what they're going for here. Where everyone else who in this city are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, who are receiving the good news, and not only receiving it, but believing it, are having a completely different trajectory of life at this point. What they were placing their hope in, what they were trusting in, what they were following, what they were religiously um, um, just creating rituals within their life to, to study and to practice on a daily basis, they were bringing all of those things and burning them in the sight of all. This is public confession. This is this new church in Ephesus, everyone coming together saying, what were you practicing? Yeah, that's whack. What were you practicing? Yeah, that's whack. What were you studying? That's whack. Let's just burn it all because we love Jesus and we love his scriptures and we want to be all about him and we, will, we love what the Holy Spirit's doing in our lives and, and the conviction that we're having and we want, to, we want to expose that. We want to extol that. We want to lift up the name of Jesus. So let's get rid of this other stuff and let's orient our lives around Jesus Christ. So a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What you're starting to see in this is a complete shift in the socioeconomic status of the city. You're starting to see them do what they did in Athens. You're starting to see them walk around and saying, we don't need this anymore. We need this. Which is going to change the way you spend your money, budget, the way you spend your time, the way you interact with others, the way you interact with your family. It sets a trajectory shift in all of those things. And you're actually going to see this play itself out. This isn't just conjecture. And I'm going to... I had it. I must have deleted it. Acts 19, what were we in verse 21? Sometimes this happens. Acts 19, verse 21. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. Am I right right there? Okay. Yes. Macedonia came and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent 
Into Macedonia, two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines for Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen, with workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper, temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen... With him have a complaint against anyone, let the courts are the courts are open, and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So that kind of is the playing out of what happens in the city of Ephesus, where Paul comes in does such a work of the gospel that people are literally no longer buying any type of relics or statues or anything of the trade of Artemis to where all of the craftsmen that are building these relics and these statues are literally pulling one another together and then are actually going outside of Ephesus to bring in other people to come into the city to try and literally kind of a tug of war here, get control and get um, the city back. Because for them, they're thinking, if no one's trusting in Artemis anymore, if no one's looking for her anymore, then we are literally going to be out of business. And so this is kind of their last ditch effort is to start a riot to literally um, create fear within the city in order for people to come back trusting great is the goddess Artemis, as they were saying here, chanting. They're literally, this is, think of this as like um, 
a, a just huge sporting complex and everyone is just chanting like one person's name and they're all just trying to boost morale and get everyone back on Artemis team rather than team Jesus. This is exactly what they're trying to do here. And what we know from church history, because he moves on from here and goes on to the next city, is that they do not win. They do not win. The, the ultimate lifestyle of those who were building and manufacturing all of these statues literally gets demolished because Jesus Christ comes in and just continues to spread through this city so that he literally says, not only in Ephesus, but we know that in all of Asia, everyone has heard of Jesus Everyone has come to know or at least hear the news of Jesus Christ and the hope that's found in him. That these gods and goddesses that we are placing hope in and actually not finding hope in, Jesus is the true God that we can place hope in, that we can find hope in, that we can find rest in. That we don't have to continue working out these religious rituals, but rather we can just trust in him on a daily basis. We can abide in him on a daily basis. And that's where we find rest. And the same thing is true for us today. I think every single one of the person in this room, I think there are things within our life where whether we just kind of take our own views of what the good life looks like and kind of attach the American dream or redefine the American dream for us. I think there are things in our lives that are constantly pulling at us when it comes to how we use, utilize our resources, how we utilize our time, how do we utilize our relationships, how do we utilize those things determine kind of the objective um, or the object of our worship. Are those things oriented around Jesus Christ so that everything we do on how we're spending our money and how, how we're spending our time and how we're spending our resources, how we're spending our energy and our, our, our love and our relationships. Are people able to look at those things and kind of do an audit of your life and say, yeah, they're oriented around Jesus Christ. That his name would be extolled. That his name would go forth to those around you. Is that the object of your worship, Jesus Christ himself? Or is it something else? And if it's something else, what my prayer is for us as a church is that we would have the same boldness as they were in Ephesus where they were coming together publicly and confessing their sins. They were coming together publicly and confessing, saying we've been putting our trust in this practice of magic arts or we've been putting our trust in our 401k. We've been putting our trust in whatever it is, fill in the blank, and those things are not going to work out for us. What is going to work out for us is Jesus. And so can we do that, church? Can we be a church who practices confession when it comes to what we're placing our hope in that is not Jesus? Because every single one of us, regardless of how mature we think we are, still have areas where we need to confess. Still have areas that aren't matching up to who Jesus is and how he wants us to live and how he wants us to reflect his glory. And so we want to kind of bring those things to light because this is a safe place. Like the church should be the safest place for us to come into this place and say, I am messed up. But I know someone who's perfect. His name's Jesus. Like I think church oftentimes gets this bad um, and, and, and it's, and it's probably on our error. But it gets this bad reputation that you've got to be 
put together, clean before you ever come into this place. Because churches for good, perfect, American loving people. Like, right? But no, church should be the place where it's safe for broken people to come in because that's literally what we're saying. The gospel is good news that invades bad spaces and we are the bad spaces that the gospel invades into our lives. We're literally the ones who say we sinned against God. He had a law, we broke the law. He had rules, we broke the rules. He had a design, we broke the design. We messed up. That's the, and, and no one in this room, and if they do, let me know. We'll practice church discipline and shoot them somewhere else. I don't know if we... That's, that's a rant. Anyways, if there's someone in this room who's going to judge you based on the brokenness that you're bringing to the table, they don't understand the gospel. They don't understand the scriptures that we're reading from and that we're studying. They don't understand the Holy Spirit who's convicting us to create spaces for us to come and confess brokenness in our lives. Mess. I'm much, much more an advocate of a grimy, messy church that is full of sinners placing trust in Jesus Christ who are getting better as the Holy Spirit is making them more into the image of Jesus on a daily basis. But there's authenticity when it comes to us confessing our brokenness. And Lord willing, as new believers come into this, I mean, we're not expecting them on night one and night two to get up and be preaching messages or to walk around and know exactly how to steward resources or to completely say no and stop doing what they were doing. This is a sanctification process. This is a one day after another day growing in the new identity that we have. That daily we are saying no to sin and yes to Jesus. It should look messy. If it's not, we are not honest with one another. And so my hope is that we can do that. And that's why we create spaces in our services to have confession, public confession. But I really hope that this flushes itself out in our community groups. Our groups that meet weekly when it's 8 to 12 people around a room and we're just talking through gospel narrative, gospel story. We're looking at creation and fall and redemption and restoration. That's literally all the Bible talks about. I pray that we're looking at creation, God's beautiful design, and we're looking at his beautiful design, and we're saying, yeah, our design's not his design. I need to confess some things. We've been doing it wrong. We've fallen. We've broken it. We've messed it up. I want to confess those things so that the body of Christ around us can encourage us, edify us, pour into us the scriptures, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, Lord, the Father, like we need all of it in order for us to be able to say yes to Jesus and no to sin so that tomorrow we're looking better than we did yesterday. We're maturing. We're after progress. We're not after perfection. Perfection will come. Progress, knowing that we will practice this imperfectly. So let's press into one another's lives and let's see as Jesus, we want to love Jesus more than we love the things that are offered in the city. 
That's my hope for us as a church, as we see here in Ephesus. They fell more in love with Jesus than what the city had to offer them. And I hope that's the same for our lives. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at